Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Are you an entrepreneur? Do you find yourself wondering what your next big idea should be or how you can take your business to the next level? Well, maybe you sometimes wonder about how you should prioritize your life and what goals you should set for your career. Or maybe you find that you absolutely love what you do, but you just don't make a lot of money at it. Is that okay? Or are you missing something? Our guest, Tony Lilius, is a highly successful entrepreneur and the subject of a documentary film, Crossing Bhutan. He has built a business from the ground up, traveled the world, and lived what some might consider the entrepreneurial dream. And he's here to share his reflections, his ups and downs, and his insights to help us along the same path. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Tony. I assume you were talking about me here. <laughs> I am talking about you, absolutely. And you've lived quite the life and you're still so young. Can't wait to see what else you've got coming in your future. And we wanted you to share with us today, I guess, getting started on your education and your first business and how you got started. So I grew up in the East Coast in Connecticut. I came out to school at Stanford. I took this huge leap of faith. No one from my school had ever been to California for school. And, you know, there was just something that was magnetic about that school. There was a very innovative quality to it, something kind of they were walking to their own at that point. And I landed in Silicon Valley in the late 80s, and it was just magic. It was just an amazing experience at school, just very entrepreneurial, very a curious, a deeply curious environment and, and a, a world that was ready to change the world and make impact. You know, you know companies like Apple's around, Apple around us, and and, you know, very quickly, more and more companies that were really making huge impact in the world. And it was really exciting to be a part of all that. And my first job out of school was a company called IDEO. They were kind of a, a pioneer in the, the product design uh, and development uh, world. And I was the first, I was part of the first group that they ever hired straight out of school. It was an experiment for them, essentially. <laughs> and so, and so I, I had the luxury of just war- working with incredible thought leaders and just incredibly creative, diverse set of peers at IDEO. And that's where I met my co-founders of Spec. So that was my first business. I worked at IDEO for four years, and that's where the four of us met and decided to kind of branch out from IDEO. So was technology in your background? Is that what you studied or something different? Yeah, I was a electrical engineer in college. This is a great thing. I did electrical engineering. I was pretty good at it at Stanford. But there was this thing, product design and mechanical engineering, that was just so interesting to me that was going on at Stanford. But I, I wasn't particularly good at it, but I loved it. I was so I was like intrigued and fascinated by their projects and their work. And so halfway through my college, actually the last year, my senior year, I flipped degrees from electrical engineering, finished it up quickly, and I proceeded to get a master's in mechanical engineering at the last minute. So a theme that will come up in my life over and over again is going after things that I love doing, not necessarily I was the best at, which was kind of an anomaly for what I felt like my peers were doing. Okay. And I want to bring that theme back up 
a little later, because I think that's a really okay. important thing. And so you founded your new company or your first company, Spec, with a few others that you met at IDEO. And how'd that go? So the three of us, or the four of us, there was actually six of us at first, and it got whittled down to four. We literally did the classic entrepreneur thing in Silicon Valley. We rented out a garage. We had a garage that we met in secret. We were still employees at IDEO. We met you know, at nights and weekends, and we were up to something. It was like our virtual, like our treehouse, you know, just where all the great ideas happened. And we just uh, you know, put some carpet down, bought some lights at Target, got some doors, put them on top of filing cabinets, and this was our office, you know, our covert office. And for months we planned, you know, our exit and, you know, what our plan was going to be. And and eventually there was that that day where we decided, you know, April 1st, we were going to make that leap of faith and say, you know, we're out of here. We're leaving this amazing job at this amazing company, and collectively we're going to go off and, and do something different. And, and for me... It, and for many people in Silicon Valley, when they start a new company, there's this almost bravado of like, you know, you can change the world. You can do it. Like, you don't, you know, it's a it's a blue ocean, brave new world. And we felt like we had, we could do something better than IDEO. And they were, they were very focused on the consulting business, uh, design consulting model. And we felt like we could do that, but we really had more in our more to offer. And that's where we wanted to be able to spin off products and companies as well, not just essentially as a consultant, solving other people's problems and, you know, doing their designs for them. We felt like we had had more to offer from stuff that came from within us. And that's what we did. (laughs) The huge leap of faith, leaving very comfy jobs. So what exactly was the business model? Yeah, so initially, we did do consulting to pay bills. We were high-valued consultants. We had a reputation. There was four of us. So that's how we self-funded. We we went out the door by doing consulting. And we actually got emboldened by it a bit, too, because in, in the companies like Cisco and Dell and Apple coming after us to use our consulting services, IDEO was not very happy about this. And they literally just they try to step in our way constantly for about maybe the first six to nine months of really fighting our progress and fighting us getting off the ground which emboldened us to going hey you know i guess we're up to something we're you know we're enough to bother them that they're literally coming into our office and you know threatening us <laughs> you know and in so, your garage like, Ooh, in our garage little old <laughs> little secure us so it actually brought this sense of like, wow, okay, I guess we're doing something of value here enough to disrupt these guys. But the consulting was very much a means to an end, and we knew that from the beginning. We put it in the name. Spec is, you know, a short term for short, shortened term for speculative. We wanted to work on what we called speculative products, things that we didn't know whether or not they were going to make money in the end. And so for years, Maybe three years, we tried to do speculative work right alongside with our consulting work, which we actually termed the dark side. We actively had language in our culture to keep us from the seductive thing of consulting. It's just we just didn't want to become yet another consulting firm because the money, you know, it's a very short cash flow cycle, it's very predictable. And Trying to divide our time between consulting and speculative work became challenging to the point where eventually we started 
cutting people off full time, saying, you know, Craig, you are no longer allowed to talk to any of our clients. You are only working on speculative work. And so little by little, we would cut off resources by whole people. And that was very successful for us. It was very hard for us to juggle the urgent and the important. So as a consultant, you got to you know, you're trying to work on your speculative project, but, you know, Dell's on the line saying, you know, that's not working and they need extra work from you. That always, always got the priority. And so that's when we really started taking off on the speculative side of the business. So what kind of products did you launch? Lots. We started, at first we tried to do things like patent speculation. We developed kind of a patent portfolio that we're trying to sell to AMD and Intel, and that didn't go very far. We weren't able to negotiate the big deals. We started licensing products to companies like Belkin and Maxell. So we'd come up with interesting designs, and then we'd essentially license the design and throw it over to the fence and say, you know, here's our design, and we'll get a royalty on when you produce this. And what we found is that we didn't really control our destiny. We, we've, we come up with these great designs, spend all this energy on this development, and then they, they weren't necessarily hugely invested in, in making sure it was a success. Mm. They just kind of would throw it into their portfolio because they had no skin in the game. And so eventually we decided we actually need to have more control of our destiny and we need to have our own brand that we need to launch our products and launch our own company and companies at that point. So we did a media streaming company. This is even before there was even Wi-Fi. There was, you know, a, uh, wireless technology called home RF. And so we started a wireless media company that we spun off and that was eventually acquired. And then we made another company called spec products that was making cases for this new thing called the iPod. And that was really where we started going. And and we took, you know, on one hand, our consulting and our chops were, were we have skills that we were designing network routers for Cisco, laptops for Dell and Apple, and we're doing very complicated, high design products. But in terms of self-funding, we couldn't ever afford to do anything in that domain. So cases were an area where we felt like we could add value, but we could also afford the inventory and kind of bootstrap ourselves. And so that's where where we started. That's where we started really getting traction. And then what happened? Then what happened? The iPod, it became the iPod and became the the iPhone. And, And it just became a wave that we we got pretty good at staying in front of. It was a, you know, in one hand, it's Yes, it's a wave, and that kind of forgives a lot of errors if you're on the wave. But it's also, it started getting very crowded. It was very messy. It was very, every time a new product came out, there was kind of a new fight for who would get the the peg hooks. And we had to constantly kind of re-innovate on how we developed our products, how we got them to market, who we were working with. It was a very dynamic period for the company and because we stayed small and agile, we were able to respond to the changing dynamics really well versus our, some of big, bigger competitors that may have, had, may have had deeper pockets, but they couldn't really move to the market as quick as, as, as we were able to. You managed to double your revenue year after year um, mm. for several years. What was the secret? Mm. Was it that you were so agile? Part of that, I think one of the key things is once 
you can double and double and double a couple times, you know, a few times. At some point, you're at a revenue number and a, and a company size where you need new systems, new skills. And we felt uh, as entrepreneurs that we were not really handled, we weren't really capable of learning these skills uh, as quickly as they were needed and frankly, not that interested, especially on the operational side. And so we knew when to get out of the way. And around $10 million in revenue, we brought in a CEO, Irene Barron, who was the COO of Monster Cable, a local business. She'd been there for 15 years and had grown that company in that role from around $10 million to around $250 million, I believe. And so we thought, you know what? We're happy to share the success with her. Like, if we can get her on board, she can bring her experience to the table because she had just done this with another company in a very similar space. The incredible added bonus is the virtual bench that she brought with her. So in, in a high-growth mode, when you need that new employee in that very specific you know, specialty, Irene knew who exactly to call. Like she knew where that person was and at what company and could bring them in. And so we were able to to scale really quickly and to get the right people in the right seats very, very, very well. And and this is now, mind you, in the late nineties, early two thousands. So we're in the internet explosion in the Bay Area. And so talent is so hard to come by. There, it just there's so much money being thrown at all the dot com companies. So it was really challenging for us to to find and retain good employees. But Irene had such a reputation and such a network that she really allowed us to hire those people and to get them get them to stay on. So how did you decide to move forward? What was that internal dialogue or the internal dialogue in your in your mind, right? How much success is enough? Well, part of it was re- realizing that I wasn't interested in being this operational person that was kind of stuck in the details. So already I was kind of stepping away from... I'm not willing to do that. Like, I don't want to learn that skill, and I don't want to be in that role. And then I feel like as we were moving from surviving as a company to thriving, there was a sense of, well, where do we want to take this, or where do I even want to take this for myself? And that's when I started setting some clear boundaries for myself of what were my time limits. What, you know, I'm not going to work on weekends anymore. I'm not bringing, you know, the phone doesn't come home at night anymore. And health limits, you know, just making sure I was taking care of myself and my sleep. Like there was, there were fundamental things that were starting to break down. My health was kind of deteriorating. And, and I just, for me, there was a sense of it's enough. I'm not, I'm not willing to do this anymore. And so that was the start of me kind of stepping away from the company from a day-to-day operational role. Year after year, it continued, you know, little by little, me moving further and further away. So once Irene came in, it was managing Irene and the senior staff from the board level. And so I was okay with that. There was, it was, there was a sense of my, uh, my core, the, these other priorities were that were being neglected were were super important, like my health and my time, you know, my happiness. And so I started to prioritize those um, and and get those, quote-unquote, into balance um, as the years went on. 
So you had financial success at the expense of some health and time, right? Mm. And Mm. so isn't it interesting that eventually you walked away from all that success to buy back your health and your time and your happiness? Yeah, and that's where I feel like the sense of enoughness came. It it was, you know, we we were beyond surviving. We're in thriving. And so the company's doing well now. And then personally, it became a sense of, like, as crude as it is, is what's your number? Like, at what point is it, like, that's enough money? You, you don't need more than that, you know? And everyone has a different number, and it's always fluid depending on your situation in life. But we were getting to that point where we thought, you know what? This company has that much value. We didn't have cash in our pockets, but the value of the company was at that number where we were starting to get to that's kind of enough. And I'm not willing to risk that at this point. You know, we've put a lot at risk and in play, but we'd like to take that off the table. And so about five years ago, that's when we brought a private equity group in and sold a majority share to the private equity group so that we could take some money off the table. And they could also bring a level of expertise to help us get through the next kind of level of the company. So was Spec absorbed by this private equity group or is it still... Uh, operating under its name? It's still operating under spec. What happened five years ago, there was a private equity group, got a majority shareholder. So I was still on the board and we're still growing the company side by side. And then two years ago, the whole thing got sold to Samsonite. So the whole thing is a subsidiary of Samsonite now. And I have no role at all in the company. And, And for us, it was a great move. What was happening before Samsonite came on board, is just we were struggling to get some operational efficiency in the company. We really needed to compete better, and also trying to get the you know the long tail of distribution, trying to get all those peg hooks of the nooks and crannies of the world, was getting expensive and not very cost effective for us because the low hanging fruit and all the you know the obvious stuff was we were there and we were having trouble high cost of acquisition for those new peg hooks, whereas Samsonite. They have that distribu- They have that distribution, you know, in their back pocket, so they know who to call, who to, where exactly to push that new inventory and the new products. So it was a great thing for the company to get that kind of backing, and from Samsonite and Samsonite is like over the moon with you know that acquisition. They're like, you know, this is the one in ten year acquisition that we that we look for, and they're they're super psyched about that acquisition at this point. So what a really win out. Yeah, totally. Totally yeah. win-win. So when did you start and traveling for me, around the world? Feeling like, mm-hmm. For me, I feel like, you know, as a baby that you've birthed this thing, you know, it's 20 years on now. It felt really the time for, you know, your your 18-year-old baby to, like, graduate and go off to college and do its own thing. And so it felt very natural and very time-appropriate for Samsonite to kind of take it to the next chapter of, of where it's going. I feel very complete with that and happy with how that ended. Excellent. And so when did you start traveling around the world? So around the five-year mark, when the private equity group came on, there was more free time available to me. And I got asked to be a member of an expedition team, four-person expedition team, to cross the country of Bhutan, which I couldn't say no to. It was a country that I'd heard you know, bits and pieces of, was curious about. They have a process there. The the government runs under what they call GNH, Gross National Happiness. It's the metric of progress for them. And, and 
happiness is what they use as their guiding principle of how they deal with development in that country versus GDP, which is a standard you know, metric that every other country in the world uses. And so we led an expedition for about two, it was a year in planning, and then it took two months to, to cross the country. And we brought a film team there to look at this beautiful country, to explore what this G&H looked like on the ground, and, and, and to see what's really happening in this country that clearly is working, walking to a beat of its own drummer there. And that was super exciting for me to take on. But similar, like I say, you know, with the company, it was a this leap of faith. You know, I had you know, really no business leading an expedition. I had never done anything even close to this. Summoning Mount Shasta was probably the biggest, quote-unquote, expedition thing I'd ever done up until that point. And so it was a year in planning and a year in training and, you know, gathering skills of what that meant to do this expedition and the amazing chapter of my life. Which is a common theme in your life, it seems like, that you take on mm-hmm. projects or or skills that you don't necessarily have a whole lot of experience, but it's leap of faith. Mm. And like you Mm -hmm. mentioned with Stanford, right? You're not about being number one or being the best. Share a little bit Mm -hmm. about that. I guess philosophically, you know, only one person gets to be the best. And there's such a focus in our culture about that person. But there's an amazing amount of pleasure and enjoyment just being in those games, you know, whether it's, you know, the game of business or, you know, being at Stanford or, or what. for me, I feel like I'm now a single father of two, with two kids that I had very non-traditionally and had no idea what I was doing when I started. But, but getting myself into that game is unbelievably satisfying and, and a source of incredible pleasure. And so I feel like for a lot of people, there's a story they're telling themselves of, I can't do that because uh, I'm not good enough, or how dare I do that because I could never be the best at that thing. And there's so much negative self-talk that's self-limiting around that I feel like I'm, I have much the opposite kind of self-talk that's going on in my head is, you know, just how exciting that thing would be to do, you know, in, and I'm okay with, you know, the criticism of you're not the best at that, or you might actually suck at it, you know, Hmm. but I get to do it. I get to improve on it. I get to learn and I'm in motion on these incredible things in my life. And so, yeah, I, it's almost, I almost feel sad for people that when I hear them talking about this, these things they don't do in life because they don't feel like they're good enough or they're, they're not going to be the best. It takes guts to be mediocre in public, actually, was something that you said, right? And it does. And it sounds like you don't have any head trash around that. You're like, okay. And apparently, you're more than enough. You're more than good enough because you went to Stanford and you graduated not only with a bachelor's in engineering, Mm -hmm. but a master's. Mm -hmm. And you're Mm -hmm. a musician and you've played with a band. And you actually brought back your team from the expedition, right? Back in yeah. one piece, right? So, and, and my kids are still alive. Right. <laughs> your kids are still alive. <laughs> and the they actually filmed the documentary on crossing Bhutan, and it was, I hear, very inspirational. So, for someone who's not that great or not the best, you certainly have accomplished a whole lot. And I think part of that is, 
is not getting hung up in any of those accomplishments. I'm not defined by any one of those. Like, I think if I was if I was attached to, hey, I was the best entrepreneur, then I would get stuck in that chapter of my life of protecting and defending this ego mm. and brand around I'm an entrepreneur. But but I'm liberated by the fact that I don't actually identify in my own psyche as I'm the best entrepreneur or you know, even enough. It doesn't even matter because I, I'm doing whatever I am doing at any one moment and and I'm giving it you know, I'm doing it in passion, I'm a, you know, an active learner and I kind of focus all my energy on that, you know, in the growth and the the wonderfulness of life. And I'll even say part of it, I, I had the luxury of business partners at Spec, where all our literally every single bit of our energy was productive energy. There was zero infighting. There was conflict and disagreement about what's next, but never blame. I, we never, when something went sideways, there was never ever blame. Wow. It was always, we're sideways. Now, what are we going to do to? to the company to help us get out of this bad situation, but not you, Ryan, got me in this situation because you did X, Y, and Z. It was very, just a very productive energy. And so I got used to that professionally of that's how you live. It's just, you know, it's just constructive, productive, looking forward energy, not forensic, you know, destructive, deconstructive energy going backwards. So, so wow. I use that everywhere. That's amazing. Yeah. How did you develop that mindset? Because, you know, it's rare. Mm. So I got lucky with my business partners. Maybe I got, you know, maybe it was great intuition. But a story I love telling about the company is when we started, we got our, you know, standard boilerplate articles of incorporation from the lawyers. And, and one of the things that said, there's four of us at this point, and they say, you know, everything will be design, decided by a supermajority you know, standard kind of language. And we had been running the company for maybe four months at that point already. And a bunch of us were like, this language seems weird. Like, we actually decide everything unanimously. And that's the way we do things. It's weird that we're now going to, quote, unquote, vote on things. And three of us thought, yeah, we should make this unanimous, change this language to mean unanimous. And one person said, we'll never, ever get anything done if we do this. And we said, okay, well, the three of us are voting to make it unanimous. And so now officially by the current bylaws, you know, we are now a unanimous decision-making company. And then we turned to that person and said, now, how do you feel? Like, do you feel now that you're the outsider? You're the one that didn't get to participate you know, it's us against you now. And we never, ever operated that way in those four months. And then once we made that decision, we never did it since then. And so we, what it led to is a decision process in which fundamentally you have, for this decision, unanimous decision-making to work, you have to have incredible respect for each other and a lack of ego, that a lack of sense of having to be right. And so what would happen is if someone was a dissenter, their job was to educate, inform, persuade the others of their viewpoint. And if they couldn't, they had to relinquish control and realize that, you know what, those three guys that I respect deeply must see something that I can't see right now, and I'm going to go with what they say. And and that worked incredibly well for us to the to the degree that whenever, you know, 
whenever the shit hit the fan for us, there was no recollection. There would be this vague recollection of, oh, yeah, we did talk about this, and I think we should have gone left instead of right, but there's someone said we might we should go left, but we could never remember who said it because what would happen, there was this thing of once you kind of all unanimously decide to do something, you forgot your dissenting view and you just moved forward. And so that's how we were always kind of in productive conflict. And that habit professionally has led to the kinds of people I engage with and all kinds of things in my life where it's just – it's really productive and constructive energy, and I have pretty low tolerance for people that that aren't wired that way. That's amazing. That really is amazing. And you had that partnership for almost 20 years, you said. Yeah. We just officially ended that one two years ago, so 18 years. And you know all the other stories, right, of relationships in business <laughs> and how so many partnerships don't work out and how much conflict Mm. there is and how much energy is spent on sabotaging each other and criticizing Mm. and bringing the company down. Mm. So kudos to you and your partners for figuring that out very early on. And I think we got lucky. Like, I don't feel like we had the value of hindsight, but we didn't, we didn't choose each other because of that. We did spend a lot of discussion around values before we started a company together and I think implicit in that values discussion was what we stood for, and that's where the respect kind of started for for each other there. Did you have corporate values? We started with personal values, and so we didn't have a company at that point, so there were no corporate values. It mm. was, what do we stand for individually? Mm-hmm. And to lay that on the table side by side with each other, and then rolling those up into what what do we stand for as a company? And so we did very much start a values discussion right from the beginning with spec that really helped unify us. And that's interesting because of course today it's very much the fashion to discuss values, but 20 years Mm -hmm. ago, not necessarily. Exactly. And and it was an incredible exercise. We had worked together for, you know, three or four years together at IDEO, but in those discussions around values, you really got to know someone really well. And it was kind of a, I don't know, like an intense dating process, you know, and I don't know why we instinctively chose to do this. And this is how we spent our time in that garage in the beginning. It wasn't about what we were doing. It's what we stood for, what we believed in, what was our crazy painted picture of what the future can look like with, with, with each other. And so that's where the energy was spent initially, not what's our first project and what's our first client and what are we going to do? Like that fell out later, but it started from an emotional core uh, place with each of us coming together. So what can we as American entrepreneurs learn from the way Mm. of the Bhutanese? And I don't even know if I said that right, but you know, those in in Bhutan, what did you learn from their value of happiness above all? Mm -hmm. Because we were there, like, we didn't just come in and take a one-week vacation and take off. We got to get really deep into their culture, and we were trying to be productive while we were there. And in making this unprecedented journey, human-powered journey across the country, was challenging. And and so in that, we got to bump up against all kinds of dimensions of the culture that were different and unique to Bhutan. And, and I felt 
like one of the nuggets that I, I left Bhutan with, and it's actually a bit of the, the subject of the film, is that this sense of productive distress. You know, there's a lot of terms in the West now around, you know, finding balance in your life. And, and balance to sometimes, to me, is is almost too restful a term. It's too calm. Or for me, what I found uh, through the experience of being with the Bhutanese is being in this kind of productive distress, productive stress mode of where there's tension and stress to towards a goal, you know, that you're pulling through something. But it's really important, this is what comes out in the film, it's really important to not be redlined and stressed that all you're doing is being stressed because there's a lack in productivity, there's a lack, frankly, in enjoyment of the day-to-day of whatever's happening. And so where I've now found have found myself coming back from Bhutan is to find that place of just where is that healthy tension where – I'm I'm being propelled into new spaces, new experiences, to new learning, but it's not so much stress and pull that I can't even appreciate what's actually happening. I'm just all I'm doing is just like surviving, you know, it's a it's a distressful kind of place. And I feel like in the west there is a sense of maximizing just trying to do all you can do possible and it's and if you can't do that then it's like you pull the ripcord and you do nothing and so it's kind of this escape where i feel like now it's it's there's a huge value of being in the state of you know almost flow where you're you're in motion with tension but with full presentness to to what's happening in the moment so what's your definition of flow yeah it's it's somewhere somewhere in that space of just being so flow is definitely motion so you're i don't think of flow as sitting and meditating under a tree so flow the, the in fundamentally involves motion and progress and what it also involves uh, you know a perfect state of flow is almost like meditation where you are highly attuned to everything that is happening in your moment you're incredibly clear and that state of being aware of your feelings, your senses fully while in motion for me is that that ideal state of flow and it's unbelievably charged when you you know you when you're in that groove and locked into it it's incredibly powerful. So what advice would you give to our listeners who want mm-hmm. to achieve more entrepreneurial success or just in general more more happiness, right? Following the yeah. the Bhutan philosophy yeah, I mean, in terms of focusing on "quote unquote" success, I'll go back to my earlier point that I think there's a lot of negative, self-limiting talk that's kind of going around culturally, and I think people aspire to do X, Y, or Z in their life, whether it's a business or an adventure or a new chapter of their life, and they think and think and think about it, and the more they think about it, the more the self-talk can kind of can eat away at that dream. And the phrase I tell people is stumble forward. At some point, you just you have to take the leap of faith and just jump. Because when I forensically look backwards at all the crazy things that I've done in my life, it always started with that first step of, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've thought about this a lot, but at some point, I can't think about it anymore. I can't know. It's 
it's a it's a it's a leap of faith. And so I feel like some people look outwardly at let's say me for me example, and they think, oh, he had it all figured out. He knew what he was doing. He went to Stanford. Then he did this. Then he did this. But I'll tell you, what, at any moment when any of those chapters started, it was terrifying. It was unsettling. I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. And then you just fill in, you you figure it out, you learn, you're dynamic, you're not caught up in this ego of, oh my gosh, I just totally made a huge blunder. I'm not, I shouldn't be doing this thing. It's just pick yourself up, do the next thing. And so my big <laughs> advice for entrepreneurs that feel like they want to do the next thing or anyone for that matter is just Take that first step. Be in motion. Start the journey of a thousand miles begins with a step. You know, just that. I feel that at a, a very deep level. So many amazing insights and learnings. You know, there's a there's a mm. saying that says, "Don't judge your insides by somebody else's outside." And I, you know, that's a great lesson. I can look at you and say, "Gosh, you're so smart. You went to Stanford. You did this. You did that." And you know, if I want to be a silicon entrepreneur. You know, I don't have the same pedigree. I don't have the same education. Mm. And uh, basically what you're saying is you didn't have all the answers when you started. You just took action. You just were in motion. Mm -hmm. And you had a mindset of being a learner and figuring it out. And that's what you did. And you did this in every area of your life. Such an inspiration. Your movie documentary, CrossingBhutan.com. Yep. Is that where we direct our listeners to, to learn more about you and uh, your film? That's that's the best place to go to right now, yeah. Great. And um, we'll also post that on the Living Wealthy Radio website with the recording of, of uh, today's show. Tony, anything else you'd like to share before we say goodbye today? I could go on forever, Teresa, but I'll spare your listeners more stories. <laughs> oh, no, they're awesome. There's awesome. Such great. Just your, your way of thinking and your mindset, if nothing else, just adopting your mindset. We, we could learn so much and improve our lives by just doing that. And thank you so much for sharing with us today. And uh, look forward Thanks for to, having me. Oh, my pleasure. And looking forward to hearing more about your stories and, and your life mm. as everything unfolds. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. 